Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Um, tonight's the fifth lecture, Snake Pit National Security Clash of Personalities, 52 to 56. So you can see it's the uh, nitty-gritty of, uh, of what happened in Israel, um, all of which is part of the early years of the state, but is fundamental to politics anywhere. If you start, for example, with the United States of America, we all know George Washington, a very famous president, first president, and he had a very distinguished cabinet, including the Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton. If you know anything at all about Washington administration, it was a snake pit. It was a cat fight. Uh, Hamilton and, and Jefferson trying to destroy each other using every possible trick in the book. And uh, they both succeeded in damaging each other uh, pretty heavily over the course of the uh, Washington administration. All of which goes to show you that in the best of situations, politics is what it is. It doesn't, it, it doesn't encourage um, chesed, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Lush and tov, <laughs> right? Brotherhood and all the rest of it. I mean, they say they do. Because that they're politicians, but what it actually encourages is the reverse. And so, uh, hence, don't be surprised if Israel, which is a democracy with all its flaws, uh, which is a democracy, going to have the same kinds of business. Uh, except here, we're going to see how it affects national security, uh, the future of the state, its position in the world, and things of that nature. Um, like in every country, especially every democracy, Israel have its. Uh, savage side of the politics and the genteel side of the politics. The savage side, I mean, Ben-Gurion versus Menachem Begin, savage side of politics. Each one would like to kill the other one if they had a chance. They call each other the worst names and they meant it and so forth and so on. Here's the genteel side of politics. Ben-Gurion and religious parties, they're not a problem. <laughs> not in the 50s. It's not, I'm, talk, I'm talking about today, I'm talking about that time. Uh, the Agoda, four seats. The Mizrahi, 10, 12 seats. They totally go wrong with everything he wants to say. They're just interested, as I said before, getting a bigger piece of the pie for yeshivas, for schools, uh, for Benakiva institutions, things like that. Uh, as far as uh, foreign policy, whether there should be more raids or less raids, whether the army should be built this way or that way, whether there should be pro-American foreign policy, pro-Soviet foreign policy, whatever, leave that up to Ben-Gurion. So he, he actually has a very polite relationship with these people, which means he has a certain contempt for them, because you don't have to engage with them in fisticuffs. The political rule, a culture of the ruling party, uh, there was a ruling party in Israel at that time, in a way that you don't exactly have today. And this is Mapai, the flag of Polaris Israel. This is the party Ben-Gurion and the others built up. And in their heyday, and this was the heyday, the 50s was the heyday. In their years, they were like the Communist Party. They were the ruling party, and they held on to control of all the important institutions of the state. Okay, So Ben-Gurion, obviously, uh, Charette was number two as the foreign minister. With all their disagreements, they still have a whole system which they agree to disagree behind doors, but in public, uh, they present a united front. Lavon at that time was the head of the, uh, the agriculture ministry. Eshkel was a really big mocker running the development of the country. Golda Meir did her thing. These are a few of a dozen or maybe 15 
big important bosses, okay, where they had the daya and they had the control of the jobs and they decide where the foreign policy is, they decide where the money is, and that's how it goes. Everything is decided by a vote, that's true, but it's a consensus that precedes the vote, as is always the case in these sort of things. Kind of reminds you of certain synagogues, and not in Baltimore. And the Mapai has a thing called Sarenu, which means all the Sarim get together in a, in a meeting before they have the cabinet meeting, they side on the line. They have Chavirenu, which is all the members of the Knesset belonging to the party, the 40 or so, get into a meeting before and they get their marching orders. You see, that I means it's debated and all the rest of it, but it's what you call in the socialist uh, world, it's called uh, democratic centralism, which means you get to, I mean it, you get to all say your opinion, and then we, then the final opinion is, is said either by vote or by the top guy or something like that, or somebody says, I, I, I have my way or I'll scream or I'll leave, you know, like a shoal. And, 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 and once, and once that's in, you're expected to get in line behind it, which frankly, um, as we stand today in gridlock in Washington, <laughs> maybe it has its place from time to time. Anyway, the, the bottom line is that's the way it was in Israel in those days. You did not have anything like Obama versus Congress and any kind of shutdown of the government. The government in Israel uh, is, is a unicameral cameral, uh, leg- legislature, which is another way of saying whoever has the majority is the dictator. I mean, literally, because you can vote, you have 61 seats, you control everything, and so it's not possible to have gridlock. They can simply have the wrong policy, maybe, but that's what, but you'll, it'll never be a problem of you can't decide what to do. Um, Ben-Gurion was the guy at the top, as we've seen over and over again. He is, by nature, and this was true of his, almost his entire career as prime minister, he's mainly preoccupied with military matters. That's who he was. He wasn't a person that was interested in this kind of stuff prior to 1946, till the end of the Holocaust. But after the Holocaust, when it came clear that Israel was going to have to come into a state by a war, he sort of self-taught himself. He read all the books and, you know, he listened to lots of people. And that's what he did for the rest of his life. He uh, was really focused like a laser on, on military matters and especially, especially what it takes to build up an army. I'm not talking about actual strategy and battle. That you have to leave to professionals. But what is it, you know, how big should an army be? What kind of what profile should it be? I'll give you just a little example. Should you have a bomber force? Should you have a, a fighter force? You know, what, what, what exactly, what, what kind of training should go in for the officer corps? You know, all this kind of nitty-gritty stuff is what he wallowed in for all these years. And he's also into high politics. In other words, America, Russia, Israel, these kind of issues, the Arabs in big letters. Uh, Ben-Gurion was, was bored with economics. Uh, he knew as much about economics as I do. Uh, he was bored with most domestic affairs. That's who he was. And um, that's probably true of many uh, administrations. But therefore, when you worked under him, I mean, you had a lot of, uh, what's, what's the right word, autonomy? You had a lot of area. He delegated very well. He wasn't interested in poking his nose and how's the education minister running the classrooms and all that stuff, except in big ways. So it's just an interesting situation. That's how the Israeli government uh, ran. Ben-Gurion liked to, but when it comes to national security, he liked to be the dictator. He liked to control all the aspects of the national security. He was the prime minister, but he also was, all of his years, the minister of defense, which means he's the political in the cabinet. He's the one in charge of all matters of the army and things like that. He was the charismatic boss of the armed forces, and no one really challenged him in these matters, because after all, he's the guy that created it. That's the way they saw it. He made the style, he appointed the officers, he remembered when they brought the ship over with the, with, with the plane, I mean with the uh, guns, and all this sort of business. And so, theoretically, everything should go by whoever's the, 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 the political 
uh, appoint the head of the uh, Defense Department. But in Israel, uh, they, it, it, he was, but that's not where his authority came from. It came from the charisma, because it was Ben-Gurion. Um, now, in addition, it so happens in Israel, the way it worked out was that he controlled the FBI and the CIA. Okay? That's because when it was set up, uh, Israel, l- let me repeat, Israel is a unicameral legisla- uh, legislature, one uh, house, and there's a cabinet. So anything that happens in the government has to be assigned to some cabinet department or ministry. You understand? That's how it goes. Is this under the agricultural ministry? Is this run by the education ministry? Is this under the commerce ministry, under the labor ministry, etc.? So um, that's fine. Anything that has to do with farmers, I guess you know where to put it. But when you have certain things that don't quite fit very well, then there's a miscellaneous called the prime minister's ministry. Right? There was a separate uh, ministry of the prime minister uh, in which it's, it's, it's like I say, catch is catching, you know, you throw all the other departments that don't fit anywhere else. So from the very beginning, Ben-Gurion had his own kind of uh, personal ministry, and one of the things that he wanted to have in that was the FBI and the CIA. Or as they call in Israel, the Sherut Betikon Klali, the Shabbat, the Shin Bet, and what eventually you, as you call in America, the Mossad. Okay? That means that the people in charge of all this reported directly to him and to nobody else. So, in a, that's not exactly the case in the United States of America. To give you one example, the FBI belongs to the Justice Department. Okay? Now, under J. Edgar Hoover, you had issues, uh, and you did. And there are good things and bad things that came as a result of that. The CIA does report to the president, but the CIA also has to report to the Congress. Because after the scandals back in the 70s, some of us remember, the Congress set up the oversight committees because they didn't like a situation in which everything's going to one guy and he controls this huge operation. In Israel, you never had till this day that kind of an issue. It's understood that the prime minister, among other things, is not simply the guy that sits at the head of the cabinet table, although he does, but one of the things he does is he's personally the guy in charge of the FBI and the CIA, which is a very powerful role because in the United States, until 9-11, it was federal statutes, as we all know, walling off. I know you're all well-read, and you, most of you know what I'm talking about. There are, there are federal laws to prevent the creation of a super spy system in which you have Big Brother. In Israel, they had Big Brother from day one, and they still do. It's a different kind of a system. They don't, in Israel, anybody who's ever been in the airport know they totally racially profile you all the time, cause, and they have no bones about it. And they can do it because there's no law against it, and it's not like the FBI is not going to report what's going by statute to the CIA or vice versa. They want to know everything about everybody, and they want to centrally control it. There's the history, which I won't go into now, of how all this came to be, but suffice it to say that this guy, by 1952, was the boss of both, right? Israel was a, was a, a early Zionist and so forth, and he came up with, with the FBI part, the, the local snoops. You get it? His job in the 40s was to spy on fellow Jews in Palestine. I'll give you an example. The communists. You know, just give one example. Uh, the Begin guys, the Irgun. And, you know, things like that. This was the, you bug apartments. It, there's no, um, how should I say, privacy laws or con- there's no constitution in Israel to prevent these sorts of things. And especially in the early years, Ben-Gurion didn't want any. And so there's nothing that you do that's actually illegal. You follow? The only thing is it's going to be a scandal. For example, uh, in 49 or 50, they caught him putting bugs under the Mapam party, um, uh, you know, uh, 
not cabinet meetings, but when the political officials of Obama get together and they're listening to private conversations of an opposing political party, which sounds like this is a purely partisan act rather than national security. Of course, they say, oh, no, this has nothing to do with that. You know, this is simply because of communism. I'm just trying to share this with you to show that the prime minister of Israel, especially in the Ben-Gurion years, had in addition to the army, he had a lot of uh, snoop power in there. And uh, Israel was a very good organizer, and he put together the uh, FBI. And since the CIA, or the Mossad as they call it, never got its act together, they tried this guy and they tried that guy. Eventually, Ben-Gurion said the heck when they put him in charge of everything. And he was the controller for 10 years or more of both the uh, Shin Bet, the, the, the internal security, and the uh, Mossad, which is the external, which means a very powerful person, okay? And he reported to a grand total of one persons, okay? So I'm just trying to lay the background for all this. And look, Israel was under attack. Uh, national security was very important, obviously, and they felt they didn't have time for fooling around. Um, now, there were no checks and balances, is what I'm trying to get across, in the national security level, except at the level of the cabinet. Because one of the interesting things about Israel is that they had a tradition, they still do, that almost everything is voted on. Okay? Uh, in fact, that they took, that's part of the Zionist culture and part of the European, Central European um, political culture, which is that the cabinet, whatever the top group is, Shapokas knows almost every affair. Uh, for, I'll just give you one example. Uh, when they appoint a new ambassador to another country, it has to be approved at the cabinet level. You see? When they appoint a deputy chief or something other, it has to be approved at the cabinet level. It's kind of interesting in that regard. But that way, they get what they call ministerial responsibility. I don't want the Mizrahi to complain about it. You voted for it. I don't want this party or something to complain about it. You voted for it. I don't want somebody to say we shouldn't deal with Germany. Ben Gurion I'm putting on the table and I want to vote. You see? And it's supposed to be majority rule, meaning if you're outvoted, you're outvoted. If you start not to listen, then leave the cabinet. And that happened a bunch of times in the 50s and the 60s, in which case he would bring down the whole government. It happened repeatedly and, 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 and reconstitute a cabinet. And with the basis that you've got to go along with everything that the cabinet is saying. So this is not exactly the American system. Of course, we have a presidential one with checks and balances and separation of powers. In Israel, they never had them. They still do not today. Um, so whenever, and this is what I was talking about last week, whenever there was a question about should they make a raid over the border, it's got to be at the cabinet, right? And uh, many times, not a few times, Sharet, who was very eloquent, it was a, and he was also a macher, in the uh, party, and he had a lot of friends and followers the way Ben-Gurion did. If anything, Ben-Gurion was a put-offish type of person individually, and he was very bossy, and you know, you, a lot of people didn't like to be around him. Charette was a different type of guy. He was OCD, but he was still the type of person that you know was more socially, uh, what's the right way, socially uh, integrated. And uh, many times he said like this, we're voting against this raid, and it didn't happen, which was a huge tension between him and Ben-Gurion, as I tried to lay out last time, and I'm not finished with it tonight, it'll go on in the future, because it's a very big part of the story of the history of Israel in the early 50s. Um, ben, as I said, Ben-Gurion really disliked interference in his area of responsibility, but he had himself had been set up the system, he's part of the system in which if they vote against it, you can't do it. Um, as you'll see later on, in 54, 55, and 56, 10, 15, 20 times, Dayan, the chief of staff, says, I move that we shall declare war on Egypt and invade right now. And every time it was taken up at the cabinet level, and sometimes Ben-Gurion was for it, sometimes he wasn't, but even when he was for it, Charette was against it, and they voted it down. You understand? He could get from the other guy. He said, what are you doing? starting a war? Are you crazy? That sort of thing. So uh, that's how it went. So the scene is set. 
if you followed everything I just said, for this climate of a court, like a king's court. Because officers and mid-level officials in the armed forces intrigued to get into the good graces of Angorian and they slander rivals. Because he's the guy that holds all the keys to the uh, power. And if you get in tight with Ben-Gurion, then that's all you need. The two leading examples of what I'm talking about, of young people who wormed their way through Ben-Gurion to rise to the top, leap over many other bodies, and shoot their way to the top, strictly through their uh, totally tight relation with Ben-Gurion, is Shimon Peres and Moshe Dayan. Have you heard of them? Right? Moshe, Moshe, Shimon Peres uh, became the number two at the defense ministry, director general. That's a very powerful position at the age of 28. How do you think all the others really felt about it at that time? That guy's in there. Right? He kissed up to the guy, the old man. He got it. And Moshe Dayan was, believe it or not, not a high-level general. And yet they leapfrogged him over to others, and Ben-Gurion put him in charge of the entire army when he was 33, 34, something like that. It's, it's not, not the way uh, people, people have to look up the dates. And uh, how did this happen? You see? Was it that they were outstanding? Now they were outstanding in their talents as you'll see. But on the other hand, it's most unusual, and they didn't get there through a vetting process. They got there because they were tight with the guy that counted. The KGB knows this, because they're very smart, and they use it to their advantage. And they got a guy, Israel Be'er, right there, who was a professor of military science and all this kind of business, and he was originally Mapam, and then all of a sudden he starts kissing up Ben-Gurion, writing articles, what a brilliant guy he is, and all the rest of it. Ben-Gurion falls for it because everybody falls for flattery. Is that true? Right? You know, the dentist tells you don't inhale. Right? But, <laughs> but, but, but we all inhale. And so uh, next thing you know, he's real close to Ben-Gurion. And next thing you know, Ben-Gurion every night invites him over to help him write his daily diary in which he puts down all the secrets. And next thing you know, Russia has all the secrets because this guy was a KGB agent. Okay? And uh, they don't officially find him and, and catch him and all that for 10 years. Okay? So this how shows how smart Russia is. You and I know this, if you know anything at all. Have you heard of Aldrich Ames and Kim Philby and all this sort of thing? And we don't know three quarters of the guy. You know, they only catch one out of 10. Okay? They're so good at that sort of thing. But in Israel, it, wasn't the, it didn't take too much brains. Right? All you have to do is get him with Ben-Gurion, say he's a great guy, kiss your way into the defense ministry, move up on the thing, and next thing you know, uh, you're, you're in with all the secrets. So think about this. All the super secret state that Israel maintained in the 1950s, it was a society, and there's some people here who were in Israel at that time, you never talked about defense matters. All matters of bitachon security were left out of the newspapers. Uh, they never said the names of, of, of generals or officers. Everything was euphemism and all the rest of it. They, later they developed secretly an atomic bomb. Yeah, right. Russia knows about everything. Because they got a guy right in there. Uh, and he had a whole legend. He said he had fought in the Spanish Civil War and so forth. It was all a lie. Okay? So this is Israel's Kim Philby, so to speak. Um, by the way, this is the signature KGB uh, style. This is what they're good at. You can be darn sure that the Russian intelligence today has somebody, I don't know who, up there next to Obama that, you know, you never know about. I'll, I'll start a rumor. Axelrod, you know. Listen. <laughs> right? Here, run, run with that ball. Wouldn't it be funny if I was right? The, uh, the, the stranger things have happened. As a matter of fact, if, uh, here's a person back in the 1930s, Walter Kravitsky, who wrote a book about this in 1939 before Stalin bumped him off. You can go to the library, get it. I was in Stalin's Secret Service. And he was a big mocker 
in the predecessor to the KGB in the 20s and the 30s, a Jewish guy. His name was Shmuel Ginsburg, really. He said, what else is new? So, uh, wait a minute. These Jews built Stalin. They, they built the KGB. I'm sorry to say. And he said he had this method in which you just find the top guy and get somebody right next to him. And he asked permission from the Soviet government in 1923 to put a guy right next to this little nut in Germany called Adolf Hitler. And they said no at the time. Otherwise, he wrote in this book that he published in 1989, we could be right up there, right next to him. You understand? That is how they operate. Okay? So anyway, in addition to the intrigue of people around Ben-Gurion angling for his favor, there's an additional tension between the Ben-Gurion lieutenants, the young guys that I just mentioned, like Shimon Peres and Moshe Nayan and others like that, and uh, Issa Harel, if you wish, and, and the machers in the Mapai party, such as we saw before. Oh, there's Golda Meir, and people you never heard of, David Remez and Zalman Aran. These were big people in the party, in the partai, in the Mapai. And what's this business that these young guys are doing all the secrets around us, and they know everything, and they're not really party members, they're just opportunists, which is of course true, and they moved everything in, you know, they're, they're, they're all, they're, what, next thing you know, they'll push us out, and they'll take over, and there was a lot of backbiting, and in and out, if you read all these diaries that they all write about each other. In addition, in the years we're looking at, in 51 to 55, Ben-Gurion also has to contend with his uh, fellow cabinet party, with the general Zionists, what today they would call the Liberal Party, part of the, uh, of the Likud, who constantly fight with him over economic matters. Uh, the general Zionist party was capitalist. You understand? Uh, Bernstein was one of the big leaders. People, people you've never heard of, and there's a reason you never heard of them, <laughs> right? But nevertheless, in their day, and in Israeli politics, there was something. In the 51 elections, the General Zionist Party went from 7 to 21. But they tripled in one election. So Ben-Gurion had to take them in the party, in, in the cabinet. And so all these years, they're fighting. They're saying, it's like Democrats and Republicans. You're stifling private enterprise. You're preventing any normal um, uh, investor from trying to put money in Israel. You're making it that you can't fire anybody. You're making it that you're uh, doing fixed price, uh, you know, price controls. I'm talking about wage, wage controls. And uh, you won't let you won't let the guy calculate how much money they pay his workers and all that sort of thing. And Ben Gurion, his party, is saying no, the workers should predominate over it. every everything. Notice we should, and we should control all the levers of power. And so there's a lot of backbiting back and forth in all these years. There was so much backbiting over this that in '53 Ben Gurion had like almost like a breakdown close to it. And so he said, I need a rest, right? And I'm quitting. He said he's retiring totally. As we know, he came back after a year, but he said he's retiring totally. And um, plus, he said, I want to set an example of Chalutziut, of being a pioneer, because he saw in 53 already, the youth of Israel are now going corrupt. They want to live in places like Tel Aviv and Haifa, enjoying the bourgeois flesh pots. You see, what happened? Well, you, see, you have to understand, see, there's two things, and we'll be talking about this later in this series, I, I hope. Um, there's Zionism. And, of course, religious Zionism. And then there's socialist Zionism. And socialist Zionism is a variation of Zionism. A regular Zionist said like this, we want to have a state, and as a country of our own, and then Sean, get off my back. It should be, you know, I, if, if I want to be a dentist, I'll be a dentist. If I want to be a cab driver, I'll be a cab driver. I want to do whatever I want to do. That's the bourgeois mentality. And then the socialist said, I guess, no. The, the establishment of state, which is an end, no, it's, it's servicing a higher end. The socialist integration, the creation of a perfect socialist state for the Jewish people. It won't happen today, but eventually it'll happen. And what does that mean? Everybody should be in a kibbutz of some type or another, more or less. 
losers and old people live in the cities. But that's it. But you know, anybody that's uh, capable is a, and guess what? Uh, boys and girls who are teenagers don't necessarily feel like that. And so my guru is very angry about that. And he said, if I go off to a kibbutz in the Negev, where you have to scratch the ground from the beginning, maybe this will set an example for the youth to abandon such decadences as girls with long hair and skirts and going to movies. And, uh, and what did he say? He said it was against ice cream shops and things like this. It's a certain mentality. I'll tell you, in Israel for 20 years, they were in principle. You're going to laugh at what I'm saying. In principle, very strongly principle, opposed to color TV. Right? That's the ultimate decadence. You see? Yeah, black and white. It was, it was a color. That's a, that's a decadent business. In America, actually, we, if anything, we go to the extreme end or the consumerism, don't we? But there's, this, this is a, a crazy thing on the other end. So I'm just trying to tell you that's what happened. I'm not going to show you the movie I showed you last week where he demonstrably is plowing and, you know, moving the hay and all the rest of it. And uh, therefore, he was out of the picture for a while. Well, we'll see. The prime minister's position went to Sharet, Moshe Sharet, and the uh, defense ministry, he went to Pinchas Lavon, the guy who had been the um, agriculture minister, who had been a big macher in the Mapai party. So uh, here, take a look at, at this. Here's been going going off to the kibbutz, you understand? And he's uh, all happy that everybody's watching him. And this is Stable Care in the Negev. It's, it's actually a nice place if you've ever been there in the, near, near the uh, crater, the Ramon, the Maktesh Ramon. And uh, uh, what do you call it? There's Charette becoming the prime minister. And he's saying, okay. And there's Pinchas Lavon, who's the new defense minister, um, guy from Poland. And uh, he's, as I say, going to now take over a very important post. It's funny that he picked a guy like this, who didn't have any background in defense, uh, which leads Cynic to think like this. He wanted to fail so he can come in. Saying you don't want to put the right guy in because then it might do too good of a job. Uh, again, it sounds like certain shows I know. Anyway, the, in, a, in a Machiavellian fashion, Machiavellian fashion, before he retired to the job, he appoints Diane and Paris to the top positions in the defense. Okay, neither of whom are loyal to Lavon, but they're loyal to Ben Gurion. So the number two, the guy who's running the defense ministry in day to day, what they call in Israel the Mankal Menahel Klali of the Ministry of Defense, which is not only the army, but it's a bunch of factories, and, you know, it's a whole big operation in, in Eretz Yisrael. I'm sure many know that. Um, and the guy who's actually the, the professional chief of the army are Ben-Gurion loyalists, and certainly not Lavon. Whatever Lavon wants to do, they immediately run the Ben-Gurion down to State Boker, and they run it by him. So it got to be crazy. Who's in charge? This is not the way to run a business. If you appoint somebody, then give him a hand. Right? If I put you in charge of the shop, you're in charge of the shop. If you do a good job, Fine, if you don't do a bad job, get rid of them. But you don't do that, but that's not how it happens. Okay? And so although Lavon is formally the Minister of Defense, and in a well-organized system, would have the power to follow through on his own ideas, in reality, his hands were bound by the Dayan and Paris and Ben-Gurion in the background, who said, me, I'm just a farmer and all this. But every week they're driving down or flying down over there to talk all the time. So this is a highly dysfunctional organization chart. I hope you'll uh, understand that. And, and, and it will have consequences. Uh, the army officers, naturally, follow the lead of General Moshe Dayan, and they show contempt for Lavon. After all, what do you know about defense matters? You see? Now, theoretically, in any kind of a government, the top guy is the top guy, and all the people down should show deference, and if he doesn't understand something, explain it to him. And No, that's not how it happens in the 50s over there. Lavon reacts to this by trying to show that he's not a wimp, and so that he'll get respect. And therefore he advocates 
harsher and harsher reprisal rates, which I told you last week in 54, they get bad. Now, here I found over there the Kibia rate, which is a little bit earlier, but it's an example of a type of thing that we were talking about last week, which is associated, ironically, with Pinchas Lavon's time, even though he necessarily, wasn't necessarily the one who thought all this stuff up, but he went along with it. This was from the International News. of this is as follows. Now under this new dysfunctional situation, the army starts to do things without asking Rishus. Okay? When Ben-Gurion was in charge, so naturally he's the boss, and he tries to ram him through the cabinet, and he often does, but when he doesn't, he doesn't. Now, uh, hey, you know, tell Levon. I mean, just tell Ben-Gurion down there, you see? He's not in power, but it's not about... And, and Charette, who's the prime minister, he doesn't have what it takes to fire everybody and he'll hurt his own political position, besides which he was really Hamlet. That's who Moshe Sharet is. He's a real Hamlet. To be, not to be, yeah, no, no, yes. And he, and he, he pulls his hair when he, every time he's presented with a fait accompli, and he pours all of his bile into his nightly diary. You read this stuff, it's in wonderful Hebrew, but oh boy, it's Hamlet, you understand? And it's, uh, he's just suffering, it's suffering, it's suffering. Now, uh, Dayan, Moshe Dayan feels his oats, because he knows that he's only responsible for Ben-Gurion, who out of office, Ben-Gurion now has what the British used to call power without responsibility. Stanley Baldwin, the famous British Prime Minister, once said, the press lords seek power without responsibility, the prerogative of the harlot down the ages. You understand? And, and there's a lot of truth to it. Because uh, Ben-Gurion said, I'm not, I, I'm, don't look at me, I'm, to, I'm just giving ideas, I don't have any power anymore, but really does. And so it's a very dangerous situation in the, any political system when you have someone who has power without responsibility, that's why we set up the governments that we do. So Obama, remember the, the Truman sign, the buck stops here? It does, right? And there's certain other places, the buck stops, there are people that are responsible for all that. If you just shoot your mouth off and have consequences of what you say, then it's really a problem. Um, think about those who got us into the Iraq war, to the Vietnam war, to the other war. I'm talking about the, the journalists and others. They can say whatever they want. And, 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 and then they go away. They, they sleep at night, you know. It's, it's, it's a scary kind of a situation. To make matters worse, Moshe Dayan consistently advocated attacking Egypt during 1954 and 56, those three years. Soldiers, naturally, Israeli soldiers, dreamed of conquering the Gaza Strip, expelling its inhabitants, improving Israel's borders, and giving Egypt, with its toxic daily broadcast against Israel, a black eye. This was crazy, but tempting. Meaning, the army officers also don't have responsibility for Israel's situation in the international arena. They say, we know this will work militarily, and whatever happens after that, that's your job, the politicians, to take care. It's not realistic. Israel would learn this lesson, by the way, two years later in the Sinai campaign. Whereas, you know, they took over the Sinai, and then when they get out of it, nothing, they had to withdraw. You see? It's, 
uh, power is a dangerous business. And uh, military power is an extremely dangerous business that has to be wielded very, very carefully. And it's not like some movie, you know, guys, I'm going to show them or whatever. Uh, this is real life. And uh, we see, we in America have made our share of, of mistakes. I mean, big time mistakes when we have ignored these basic limitations on power. Um, and so anyway, that's what's happening all during these years. Uh, the cabinet, all during 54, 55, and 56, repeatedly rejects this suggestion. So over and over again, Diana is saying, with, and these generals, as you could just take a look at them, they're a bunch of live lines, which is good to be an officer, but they're ready to go any minute. Okay? This guy mocked, and there was another guy, Bear Hartzion. Oh my goodness, and Ariel Sharon, you can just imagine. All right? And uh, that's Sharon. And they're ready to go at, at, at any time, and uh, they say, well, let's take out Nasser and blow up Egypt and conquer and give him black eye. And what'll happen? Oh, we'll show the Arabs. And then, and Sharek keeps saying, and then what? Right? He's asking the question that people need to ask. And then what happens after that? Oh, we'll show the Egyptians. And then what? I don't know, but we'll show the Egyptians, you know, we'll, we'll, they'll change the government. And how's that going to happen? He said, oh, we'll conquer Egypt. Oh, really? You're going to take over Egypt? The Tzahal should go into Cairo? Is this the plan? Right? They're supposed to go into Alexandria? And then what happened? And what if they shoot at you? What happened? Ah, oh, no, no, don't ask me. These are the kind of cabinet things that went on, uh, as they say, all during the time. The public was completely unaware of any of this, obviously. Look, it's a highly dangerous situation I'm describing. The military is supposed to define itself by utter subservience to the democratically constituted civilian authorities. That is what we hope a democracy is. Uh, you know, what, seven days in May and all that stuff. <laughs> you don't want that. Uh, the Israeli army had not really absorbed this idea in the 50s. Instead, it displayed a kind of personal loyalty to Ben-Gurion, who, as I told you before, enjoyed a unique charismatic authority. They were loyal to him as the boss, or Hazakain, the old man, not as a civilian leader per se. And uh, this was a problem, because if that's so, let him be in office and, you know, and live with the consequences. A democracy must, above all, stress process and institutions, not charismatic personal authority. True? A democracy is all about the institution. It's not about the guy, because you'll never always have the president you want. And you'll never always have the Secretary of State of Defense that you want. And you'll never have the Chief of Staff and, and all that you want. But what's supposed to happen? Everything should fall apart? It's the system. Right? We pride ourselves in America being a country of institutions, of laws as we call them. And that's what keeps the Republic going for a couple hundred years. Well, we've, you know, we know it now, but... We've had our mistakes in American history, and Israel was very early in these years. They're brand new to it, and it wasn't so simple. And so um, a process should, as I said before, democracy should stress process institutions, not charismatic personal authority. But Ben-Gurion had always been quite comfortable with wielding unique power over the entire national security structure with no checks and balances. Remember, he had the power, and they still do, to arrest and hold without trial. Okay, We're back to Abraham Lincoln time. The, the law in Israel till this day is they have not ever gotten rid of the, what they call the British uh, regulations, uh, which were in the books in the British mandate, and they simply never withdrew them because they're, uh, what shall I say, comfortable for the government. And they have the right that they can do like in a movie, you know, just arrest you and hold you in jail or wherever, hold you wherever, and not tell anybody about it, and not get you a lawyer, and you don't have a right to habeas corpus, and so forth and so on. If they, if they wish to, and once in a while they do it. You know and I know, uh, not long ago, I don't even know the whole story, but we, but we all saw a little while ago that Australian guy, whatever, has committed suicide. Remember, it wasn't too long ago 
in the spy system of the government never still told what exactly happened and 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 I can't tell it and I don't think you can either but he was in a, a, under this uh, business you know where they just yanked him and who knows what what it was all about and that's my point they have this power of who knows so Israel does maintain which you cannot do in the United States although I have to modify that also don't I because there's a thing called Guantanamo but that's highly unusual in Israel also it's highly unusual but when you know that if you step over certain lines, Ben-Gurion can, can yank you out of bed if he wants to, that kind of has a bracing effect upon the nature of public uh, discussion of national security issues. And everybody in Israel knew this. And I'll repeat, this law is still in the books today. The only thing is, the public goes along with it because it's, usually, it's used very sparingly and mostly on Arab terrorists. Right? It's very rarely used on Jews. But there, if they thought, this is, what I'm about to tell you has happened. If they thought that somebody from the West Bank, well, you know, from the Gush Etzion, wants to blow up the Kotel or whatever like that, uh, it's happened before that they just pulled a guy and held him under arrest for such and such a period. And for all I know, they might still have people like that. And you're not allowed to, and, and they put a, a blinker out on the, on, on the press that you're not allowed to talk about it. And it's harder to do today with the YouTube, but nevertheless they try. And that guy is history, so to speak. Uh, or girl, until they decide otherwise. So Israel, I, I repeat, Israel is not the United States, but to be perfectly honest, I'm, I'm a liar, because Abraham Lincoln did it, and Franklin Roosevelt did it, and other presidents have done it, and to a certain degree Obama has done it, and Bush, right? under unusual circumstances. There are people, listen, President Obama is a liberal, and he is. And nevertheless, you know, and I'll, I'm all in favor of this, but nevertheless, you know, he has blown up American citizens overseas uh, without a uh, arrest warrant and without all the other constitutional uh, safeguards. Uh, when they dropped this bomb or, or missile on that uh, American guy in Yemen who was uh, big with the Al-Qaeda, they didn't, <laughs> didn't have a tape recorder a minute earlier saying, you have the right to your... Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, all the, like the old TV shows, you know. <laughs> they just went kablooey. So, uh, hello, Doverhu. You understand? And by the way... No one in the United States, no, no, no one significant, is protesting what I just said. Because as long as you have a political consensus among the population that this is necessary, as Roosevelt had during the Second World War, as Abraham Lincoln had during the Civil War, as Obama has today in the war against terrorism as they see it, the average American says, Constitution, Constitution, I don't want this guy blowing a building like Boston, you know, with the, with the marathon or something like that, that's all we need. So these issues are quite fluid if you want to be, a, uh, if you want to think about it. So this administratively, structurally unsound situation, where Lavon and, Sh- and, and, and here comes the soap opera, Lavon and Charette hate Dayan, but they can't fire him because they're afraid of Ben-Gurion, where the military does not feel bound to listen to civilian authorities they do not happen to respect, was a situation ripe for disaster, and it happened. In order to understand the situation I'm about to talk about, uh, let's take a look for a moment at Israel's intelligence community, as they call it. Basically, it's three components. As I said before, it's the Shin Bet, the Mossad, this, the FBI, and the CIA. These are civilian, number one and number two are civilian agencies, and therefore they're directly under the control of the Prime Minister. Number three is a military thing, right? Every army in the world has military intelligence. So does the United States. Meaning, you have the CIA, and totally separate from that, you have the Army intelligence, the Navy intelligence, the uh, Air Force intelligence. I think we might have people in the audience here as a part of that stuff. And, and plus they have the National Security Agency, meaning it's not all one big, one big uh, business. So my, here's my point. These two r- report directly to the Prime Minister, in this case, Charette. Now, is this a Harrell? Who was a, a, a law-abiding type guy. 
meaning he was a Ben-Gurion follower, but he did say, you know, to give him credit, he did say that now it's a Moshe Shred as the Prime Minister, so I report to him. Okay? He did do that. But the third one is not reporting to anybody directly, it's reporting to the head of the army, or in other words, it's reporting to Moshe Dayan. Okay? So he's got, a, if you wish, he's got his own little CIA operation over there, and that's how the military is set up. This is a basic problem in the intelligence field around the world. How do you coordinate the civilian side of the intelligence community with the military side of the intelligence community? And they, every country works it out or fails to, however they do. Okay? Now, here's what happened over here in, in, in Israel in the, in, in the period we're talking about. Um, I want to tell you a little background for a moment. The, as I mentioned last week, the Israeli army, the Sahal, during the years I'm talking about, was definitely larger and certainly stronger than the Egyptian army. Even though you look at Egypt so big, you look at Israel so little, which is true, nevertheless, for the reasons I mentioned last week, the Israeli army in the, in the 50s, early 50s, was clearly stronger and more powerful than the Egyptian army. In addition, so in other words, you could sleep in Tel Aviv because Egypt's really not going to attack. If they attack, they would lose. In addition, as an extra safety measure, the Israelis could look to the fact that Egypt in the early 50s, was still occupied by the British army, which was a restraint on a potential Egyptian attack on Israel, if you can follow that. Uh, the British military presence was in the canal zone and was viewed by Israel as a highly desirable phenomenon. So notice, here you have Egypt next to Israel, but Egypt wasn't totally free at that time, so to speak. Egypt, as I'll explain in a second, had a large British force in there, and the Egyptians can't attack Israel if you have a big British army unless the British give an okay and why would the British do that? So as far as Israel is concerned having a certain muzzle if you wish in Egypt which is a highly valuable muzzle but it couldn't last. There is a history of Egypt-UK relations Egypt-British relations. If you go back once upon a time Egypt used to belong to the Turkish Empire the Ottoman Turkish Empire and then in the early 1800s one of the Turkish governors Mehmed Ali uh, went in independent for himself. And when he did that, so Egypt became sort of like an independent country for 50, 60, 70 years. And then what happened was that um, he was viewed by, and, and, and Mehmed Ali and his successors, uh, down to Farouk, they're actually from Albania, they're not from Egypt. And so the Egyptian, and, and, the, and the people they gave the big jobs to were non-Egyptians. So the local Egyptians didn't like this, and here you have one of those tensions which, thank God, characterized all the Arab societies. And so the result was you had all this problem in Egypt. In 1880, this guy, Arbi Pasha, who was an uh, officer in the Egyptian army, he was like a Nasser. So he said like this, let's throw out all the foreign influences and Egypt for the Egyptians. And so he made a revolution against the ruler, this guy, Mehmet Tufik, Tufik Pasha, um, who was the great-grandson of Mehmet Ali. And he was the king, let's say, the Khedive, as they call him, in, in, in Egypt. And so do you follow what I'm saying? This guy... Um, wanted to overthrow this guy and set up like an Egyptian, Egypt for the Egyptians type country. He got scared and he called in the British for help. The British sent in General Wolseley, who defeated uh, the rebellion and restored him to power and kept him on the throne and stayed. <laughs> they never left. This, this is what happens. And because the British said like this, Egypt is unstable, the Suez Canal we just bought, the French built the Suez Canal, but they ran out of money. The Israeli chopped it at a bargain price in 1875. Disraeli, Benjamin Disraeli, the Prime Minister of England, grabbed it in a famous uh, coup in 1875. It's one of his famous things in, in, in Egypt, you know, when, when, without going into the story. So England owned the Suez Canal, 
you know, Egypt is too uh, valuable left to the Egyptians. And so from then on, the British uh, informally uh, were in charge of Egypt. So they said like this, the king is the king, the Khedive is the Khedive, and there's an Egyptian government, all the rest of it. We're just here to advise. You see? So any kind you had in, in every Egyptian uh, government ministry, it was a British advisor. And he's got the, you know, the man and the day. You know, he's got the one, the final rule, and the Egyptian couldn't stand this. So until, this is a whole, this is the history of e- Egypt and, and, and England. And uh, until the First World War, there wasn't anything they could do about it. After the First World War, there was huge riots all throughout Egypt. They shot the British guy in charge. And, oh my goodness, back and forth. And by the time it was all over, they cut a deal. Uh, it took them long, many years. They cut a deal in which they said that the British will withdraw mostly from Egypt. They'll just stay in a few places, mainly around the Suez Canal and things like that. But they have a defense treaty so that if Egypt ever needs it, uh, the, the British army will come and rescue them. Which is another way of saying, if the British ever want, they'll take over Egypt if it's necessary. Now, this was necessary. England would not have won World War I and World War II. I say again, World War II, if they didn't control the Suez Canal in Egypt. That's a fact. You know, Hitler would have won. So there's a different ways of looking at this. Oh, no question about it. They, they needed to maintain the access to India and to the Far East uh, and the oil. Oh, goodness. This, this would have been bad news. It was, it, was, it was a vital necessity for British Empire. In the Second World War, the king of Egypt, King Farouk, uh, wanted to side with Hitler and throw the British out and he'll take over. Aye, the Germans will take over. He never thought that far. <laughs> you know and so uh, Egypt was going to join up secretly with Hitler when Rommel was getting close in 1942. Sadat uh, was famous or infamous for being one of the officers who organized the whole thing and was going to get together and meet, and, and meet with the Germans. Um, the British weren't stupid. And so in the middle of the night, uh, the British ambassador, if you want to call him that, came with a bunch of the soldiers. They seized the palace. They put a gun to the king's head. They did. And they said, either you sign this uh, agreement and appoint a government that we want, which will invite the British army in to rescue the country, or we'll shoot you. And he gave in. He didn't want to. Uh, but Churchill said, I guess I ain't got no time for this foolishness. Right? There's, there's a war going on. Rommel's here. And so it worked. The British held Egypt to the rest of the war. And they won, and so forth. And by the way, the world didn't mind. Roosevelt and Chiang Kai-shek met with Churchill at the Cairo conference a year later. You know, this was all, uh, the public opinion was on England's side. But after the war was over, there's a new day. So England realized they have to make nicey-nicey, and they have to get better in with the, with the new Egypt and the Arab masses and all the rest of it. So all this is happening alongside the time when Israel's becoming a state. Isn't the Middle East a wonderful place? Now, um, uh, well, here's the thing. Um, so this uh, image of trying to get rid of England was the main objective of Egyptian politics. And I can tell you that the defeat of the Egyptian army by Israel in 48-49, because remember, Egypt, uh, although the Egyptians did fight very well, by the time you get to December of 48 and beginning of 49, got alone and the Israeli army, they were about to wipe out the Egyptian army. They did an end run around them. Truman saved them. Otherwise, Egypt would have, uh, the army would have collapsed. The, some effect of this in Egypt was to totally discredit the regime, which then, therefore felt they got to get the British out. And so from then on, 49, 51, 52, and all that, uh, riots against the British, burning down British installations, all that sort of thing. And then in 52, there was a revolution, and Nasser came into power, not right away, but he was one of the big machers. He viewed himself as the successor of this guy, which he was. He said, this guy tried to do it in 1881, and now we're going to do it. And he did do it. And so what he did was, he started negotiating with the British and putting pressure on them 
And there's all kind of uh, stories to this, but to make a long story short, he got together with uh, Anthony Eden, the foreign secretary, and they made a deal that the British soldiers are going to get out of Egypt, although England will still own the Suez Canal. Okay, that's if you're just interested in the history of relations between Great Britain on the one hand and Egypt on the other. But how does, and, and that's how it looks giving a dry historical lecture somewhere. But how does it look if you live in Tel Aviv? How does it look if you're a Ben-Gurion or Charette or Moshe Dayan or one of these guys? They say, Eichewald, the British army is pulling out of Egypt. Now there'll be nothing left to restrain them from attacking us. Now, in hindsight, and even at that time, a cold military calculus said like this, even to get the British army out, the Egyptian army is still very weak. And Egypt is a pretty weak country, even though they're a big population, and it's uh, take a long time for something like that. That's not how they saw it. And so they panicked, they freaked out. Uh, at least many officials in the government did do so. And Moshe Dayan got very worried, and he started saying, can uh, this be stopped? What also scared them was that Nasser was very tight with the CIA. Here's Kermit Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's son, who was the CIA chief in the Middle East, and he said at the very beginning, uh, Nasser is not communist, which was true, and he can be our boy, and we should cooperate with him, and let's get very tight relations between uh, Nasser and Compton. There's a famous book, Wilbur Evelyn, the CIA uh, spy, who wrote it, Ropes of Sand, in which he gives all, you know, the, the CIA taught him how to set up a secret police, and show how to give poisons, and they showed him how to organize his uh, apparatus, uh, we, we, well, let me ask you a question. Didn't we do something like that with Saddam Hussein at one point? You know that. So, it's a, that's the business of, 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 of dictatorships in the world, which America is not totally unfamiliar with, unfortunately. And that really panicked the Israelis because, oh, Gavalt, you're going to have Nasser, and it's going to make Egypt powerful, and America is going to get behind him. And, you know, this was the nightmares in the security establishment in Israel, which I, I can totally understand. And, you know, that's all we need, a U.S.-Egypt relationship. So what are you going to do? So I'll tell you what really happened. And that is, the Moshe Dayan concocted a scheme with the head of Amman, with the head of his military intelligence, uh, uh, Colonel Ghibli. All right, this, this is what really happened. With Colonel Ghibli, and the idea was, uh, without asking the, the, the political leadership at the top, because I told you the culture was already one in which the army just does what it wants to do, and he said, can we figure out some scheme or some plot to make... Uh, England and Egypt uh, fight each other, or England and America fight each other. How can we do that in order to stop the British withdrawal from forces from Egypt? Um, Amman had already set up a secret union, I think it was number 130 or something like that, in the Arab countries under this guy, Avram Dar, he was an Israeli spy, in other words, and he was in charge of setting up spy rings throughout the Middle East. Look, Israel has spies, the Arabs have spies, that's the way it goes. In, in April of 52, at the time of the Egyptian Revolution, when Nasser and these guys came to power, he sent an uh, agent named Max Bennett uh, to Egypt. He's supposed to be the Israeli James Bond, and he was. Meaning, in Egypt, he's, he comes in, uh, it is a good movie, uh, except it has a bad end. Uh, he came in like an ex-German officer, and he was fighting under the Nazis, and he had spent time in Germany. He was originally born in Germany. Uh, here, I'll tell you a piece of totally useless trivia. His grandfather is the guy that wrote the book that they always quote in the Arts of Gamar is about the geography in Palestine in the 1800s, Obermeyer, because he went to Baghdad and the Middle East in the middle 1800s to be the tutor of a, of a uh, Persian prince, and he got the prince to, t- to take, take him on a hunting trip up and down the Nile and Euphrates because he was really secretly looking for Sur and Pumbedisa, which is where the Gamar was put together. Um, could I make that up? I could. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Anyway, so this guy is a James Bond because he comes in there and he makes the right connections. He meets the right men and the right women in Egypt. Next thing you know, he's with Volkswagen and he's with this group and with this group and he's living the high life. You know, and all part of a plan. And he was a he was a German Jew who made an Aliyah early on. His wife was a South African uh, Jewish girl. You know, Davidov, and uh, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And he he put on a, a on a show. In addition, the military intelligence, the Amman, the Israeli intelligence, has recruit did something which they shouldn't have done, uh, and Israel should never do, but they did it anyway. And that is, they recruited Egyptian Jews, uh, aspirings. Some of which is something that the Mossad strongly disapproved. When Israel Harel was in charge of the Mossad, they always said like this, don't make a Jonathan Pollard. That's not fair. You understand? You don't get local Jews to act as spies for Israel because then, then they can, they can kill everybody. They say, look, you know, they're, they're all spies for Israel. You, you understand? But the Amman had its own rules. They didn't care in those days. This is in the early years when Israel had learned everything the hard way, unfortunately. Um, and so they get these young boys and girls, or, uh, or, or you know, 18, 20, you know, young, young people, mostly from B'nai Akiva. Okay? Um, is, people don't understand. Is Egypt, I mentioned this earlier today, Egypt, in, um, prior to the establishment of Israel, uh, up to 1948, 75,000 Jews, half of whom were well-to-do. The Egyptian Jews had a good in Egypt. Uh, they owned all the department stores. They owned uh, many of the fancy restaurants, the, the dress stores, um, you know, banks and things like this. Egypt still had, this one Nazi wanted to get rid of. I don't blame him. Egypt still had a situation under the kings in which a lot of foreigners enjoyed special privileges in Egypt and played very important roles in building up the Egyptian economy. Uh, Italians, French, um, British, Jews, uh, Greeks, uh, people like that um, did very well in the old days and um, they lived a high life. And the Jewish community was quite uh, well-to-do. Now, they had their poor ones also, but many of them were well-to-do. And um, synagogues, and believe it or not, in the old Egyptian regime, uh, didn't bother them. They had Zionist clubs. Um, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, of the, the, all kinds of types, including B'nai Kiva, and um, um, parade. I mean, it's incredible. You know, parades with Israeli flags, and Yom Ha'atzmaut days. There's a speech... I saw, I, I was talking about Rav Yosef a couple of weeks ago. He has a, I, a book has a collection of his speeches. And one or two of them, believe this or not, are Yom Ha'atzmaut speeches that he gives in 1949 in, in, in Cairo. Okay? Uh, imagine a thing like that. And, uh, and, and, and people don't understand, it was a very liberal regime, which of course changed later on. Um, so the Egyptian tradition in this particular regard under the kings was a very liberal one as far as the Jews are concerned. The, um, the, the, the point, therefore, is that you have a lot of young boys and girls who are in the RCA, you know, with things like that, who are active in, in, in Jewish causes and very heavily indoctrinated with Zionism. And, uh, and this is very not right, what I'm talking about. And the uh, Avram Dar and these other military intelligence guys said, so we, we want you to come spy for Israel. Okay? And set up spy rings. There is a body of safe, by the way, uh, dressed fashionably with a fez, this is his yeshiva. Okay, once upon a time, smaller. This is yeshiva bachrim. It's not exactly near Israel, but it doesn't look so different if you're talking about 1949, if you just change the hats. Anyway, um, uh, so, so, so this is, this is what they end up doing. The most famous of these type of guys, Eli Kohn, who will go, go on to greater fame later on, as you know, when he is, uh, 
a spy 10 years later in Syria. But originally he's in Egypt. He's actually from Aleppo. Chalabi uh, family. Syri- they are Syrian Jews. And they moved to Egypt. His parents, whatever, moved to Egypt. And he grew up over there. Very uh, tradition, very traditional Sephardi family. Uh, yeah, I think there were some, I mean, there must have been if it was a Ben Kiva. Um, you know, and that, and, and that whole sort of thing. And, um, and, uh, and now he's, uh, he's, he's spying for Israel. No, they give him secret training. Some of these people flew secretly to Israel. I mean, the whole thing is, is quite remarkable. And uh, so far, so good. Uh, the spy rings were not active. They said, just get ready until we give you the word. Now, in mid-1954, uh, Ghibli and Dayan concoct the following plan. Get the Jewish spies to conduct a kind of mini-terror campaign, putting bombs in public places in Cairo and Alexandria. They should leave behind notes and hints that the bombs were placed by Egyptian fanatics, by the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. The hope was that the Americans, and especially the British, would view the Egyptian situation as unstable. There's bombs going off everywhere, and that the British will change their mind and keep their military forces in Egypt. It's a very Talmudic type of way of thinking. Okay? You do this, it'll lead to that, and all the rest of it. And uh, they didn't run this by anybody. The later on, they'll say they did, but didn't run by anybody. They thought they're such goonim that they'll come up with a plan like this. It's this, this very uh, controversial operation, fraught with all kinds of dangers and consequences, was never run by Charette, who was the prime minister, or anyone else, not even by Lavon. There was zero vetting process. They didn't really run it through a whole big business. As much as they had to figure, this is a good idea. And if it leads to war with, with Egypt, what the heck? <laughs> right? um, and, and in other words, uh, so this guy and this guy put it together. These guys who are the officials in charge know nothing about it. Okay? And uh, my goodness, to make matters worse, uh, the man chosen to direct the operation in Egypt, uh, the man who was supposed to be Israel's top spy and run this particular operation, was a notorious liar and an unstable person. They put the wrong guy in. Is this guy, Avril Alad, Seidenberg, who was a German Jew who made Aliyah and had a long history of stealing refrigerators and lying about his thing. You know, the, I want to tell you something. This is the early years of Israel. I'll say it again. In the early years, you learn, you make mistakes. At that time, there was a romantic, they must have seen it in the movies, there was a romantic notion that, uh, you know, that, uh, how do they say it? Poachers make the best game wardens. You take a guy with a criminal background, it's like they saw too many Humphrey Bogart pictures. You know, he said, take, take a guy with a criminal background, give him a sense of national responsibility, they'll go the extra mile to justify their rehabilitation, and everybody, that's not true. You get a person who's unstable, guess what? You get, you end up with a situation unstable. And this is the guy you put in charge of this whole business, this, cause, cause he didn't run it through any kind of process. You see? They know everything. Here you go. So, um, instead of being professional, like the other guy, Remember, Max Bennett, he really was doing the professional thing. This guy, Elad, flaunts a swinging lifestyle in Cairo. He runs around with a, with a, with a, a Cadillac and, you know, he does all the, calls attention to himself. And this is the guy who knows all about the Israeli spies in Egypt. He knows them all. Which is a basic violation of spy business. Right? When they call in Israel midur or compartmentalization. And so, what happened? The spy rings are activated in the spring and summer of 54. There's a fires set off and bombs in the post office Alexandria, sometimes in post boxes, in mailboxes. There's a bomb put in the American Library in Cairo. And finally, they want to do so, put them in the biggest movie theaters in the same day in Cairo and Alexandria. That's all we need. Uh, but on the way, carrying it there, and these guys weren't, who, who are we talking about? These are kids who used to be Habunim, Ben Akiva, they're saying, you know, they're not really super experts in this sort of thing. 
And so it would be funny if it wasn't unfunny. And the bomb blew up on the way there. You know, he exploded in the guy's pants or something, I remember. And the police caught him. And uh, there's no compartmentalization. So everybody knew about everybody else. And so the Egyptian authorities simply rolled up the whole spy ring. You know, they found this guy who knew about this one. Then they went to this one, knew about this one, and this one about this one, and they got them all, all the ones in, 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 in all over the place. They even got Max Bennett, who was not part of this whole thing. He was their real spy, but somebody along the way knew him, and that took him down. He eventually got killed. Um, it was a complete disaster. Okay, on many levels. On the one hand, you lose all your spies. On the other hand, what does Israel look like? Right. I mean, what can Egypt and the other say? Says. We told you about the Zionist plotters all over. This, this is the real thing. Okay? I mean, what, what, what explanation can you give to something like this? You can't. And, uh, and it's a terrible situation. No, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't they went to one and he led to the other and led to the other. Maybe they were betrayed by Avri Alad, by the guy they sent, the unstable fellow. That's what really happened. Okay? He... He, uh, the, the Egyptians, we don't know how. Maybe for a guy, a guy like that might have just sold it out for money. We'll never know. Everybody got arrested and rolled up. He was able to leave Egypt uh, days and days later with no trouble and go to Germany. It was in Ferlach. So Israel was faced with a PR disaster, a security disaster, an espionage disaster, etc. The Egyptians tried them and hanged them, or many of them, not all. Some ended up in jail. There was this girl, Marcel Ninio. I don't have time to get off on the YouTube. I just saw before I came here. She's got, if, if you're interested, you know, look up the Lavona Fair 1954. Maybe you'll find it. She, she'll tell you, uh, the 11 years or something she spent in, in Egyptian jails and things like this. Till after the 67 war, Israel was able to get him out in exchange for 10,000 Egyptian prisoners. You see? And, uh, it was just a, a terrible business all along the way because these people were trusting and they thought Israel and the Mossad and the idealism and all the rest of it. And it ended up in the worst possible type of a situation. Um, publicly, Moshe Sharet denies the whole thing. He sent re- secret word to Nasser, which was the truth. He said, this was done without my knowledge. Um, and, he, and he begged Nasser, you know, to, to give him a break and so forth. But they didn't. They hanged him. I, I don't blame them either. Um, this guy, Bennett, killed himself the night before. It, it was what it was. Privately, of course, Sharet, you know, is <laughs> freaking out. Now, who authorized this? Lavon said, not I. Right? Ghibli said, yes, you did. Well, who's going to, he's going to not take responsibility. Yes, you did. Diane and Paris back Colonel Ghibli. They forged letters to make it look like Levon ordered the whole thing. Charette, knowing what's going on, maybe is afraid to tangle head on with Ben-Gurion's boys. So he sets up a committee. That's what you always do. You know, whenever in doubt, my, my constant advice is, Form a committee and stave off the crisis, you know. So, um, he forms a committee from, called the Dory Olshan Committee. Uh, he was on the Supreme Court. He had been the former chief of the general staff and all this stuff. And Lavone acts like Captain Quig, you know. He, he, he's all nervous during the, uh, uh, the, the inquiry and all that. Um, they kind of could smell that he was being framed, but nobody wanted to buck Ben-Gurion and buck Dion and all that. So the committee is non-committal. Right, they say after it's all over, we can't decide. Lavon resigns in anger. Okay, no problem. Ben Gurion is recalled to replace him as Minister of Defense. <laughs> so there's a, he's leaving. You can see his face. He's coming back in, and he says, "This is great, <laughs> right?" And welcome to the snake pit, as I told you. Okay, D- uh, Diane and Paris are jubilant. 
they're now in total control of the military, now and they will be for a long time. Um, from then on until the time Ben-Gurion left, uh, they were the bosses. They did run the whole defense business under Ben-Gurion. That, that is how it went. Lavon is, after all, a big macher in the Mapai party, so um, they give him a consolation prize and make him head of the Histadrut, which is a very powerful position in Israel because it's the socialist economy and the Histadrut owns everything and runs everything. Um, let him get over it and shut up. That's the ba- basic idea. But as we know in America and in other countries, Sheker ain't Leraglayim, that a lie doesn't, sooner or later it gets out. You see, it, it, it doesn't work. Especially among Jews, we all have big mouths. You understand? You know, maybe in Russia, China, it goes forever. Here it gets out. And so as the years pass, it becomes increasingly clear that Avri Elad was a double agent. He was caught in 57, uh, having secret conversations with an Egyptian military attaché in Europe somewhere. Uh, what's that all about? You see? Now, um, uh, Israel, early on, starts to really suspect him. But as I say, he was a constitutionalist, believe it or not. And he said, I, I, I want to get a conviction and I don't have the evidence yet. You see? Um, but he knows too much. Uh, he knows Ghibli and Dayan ordered the operation and not Lavon. So what do you do? Uh, you arrest him without trial. And so he was uh, picked up and put away and eventually gets a secret trial like Venunu. You know, it's a trial but away from the uh, public. Gets a 12-year uh, jail sentence. Eventually 10 years and they figure they'll shut him up. You were not allowed to talk about his name in Israel uh, for 10 years. He was always the third man. They like that movie. Okay? No, the, the Ghibli. I, excuse me, I said it wrong. Uh, Avri Elad. See, I'm getting it mixed up. The guy we had before. He was the third man, uh, as you'll see in a second. Uh, in 1960, uh, four years later, uh, this is six years later, the girl, the secretary, who typed the original documents, Dahlia Carmel, blabs, and part of the documents were tampered with and forged. In other words, it's Watergate. I told you, Jews came to keep their mouth shut. I, uh, I found yesterday, some of you, it's about, t- this will take about a minute, uh, and it's in a writ. I can't help it if you don't understand the Hebrew, but you'll bear with it for a minute. There's what she was like then, and, that, and, and now you'll see her now. And she says in Hebrew, he says, yeah, he told me to, to change the, the typewriter and move this line over here and to make another paper look like the first paper and all this kind of stuff. She's just blabbing because now it doesn't matter. And this is the surreal aspect of doing modern Israeli history. Now everything's on Israeli TV shows 50 years later. You know, it's like Watergate. And, 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 and there you have it. Take a look at this. That's her. That's her. Not always in a right way. That's enough. I, in other words, she just said right in the words, "This was ordered by Lavon." It's it's like Nixon's secretary, you know that sort of thing. So uh, 
Now, this was 1960. Ben-Gurion was still in power. Shimon Peres was still in power. And Moshe Dayan had just left office, but he was still, he was a government minister. So, uh, oh, yeah, 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 now what? Okay. Uh, Lavon immediately says, I told you so. But if he's right, then Dayan and Peres are guilty. And Sahal is exposed as being corrupt at the top. Ben-Gurion, who's a prime minister in 1960, says, Chas He says, the, this was his language. Sahal is Kodesh Kodashim. That's what he says. And therefore, shut up, Lavon. Lavon says, I'm not shutting up. I insist on a reopening of the case. And, it, and everybody, and all these real newspapers, they start bringing up, I'm Dreyfus. Right? The French officer, um, what's the right word? Framed by the system. Okay? Uh, where's my Zola? Okay? Why, 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 why are you allowing this to happen in the state of Israel? The Jewish people should be the last one to do a Dreyfus. And uh, his guys all say, Truth, like Zola. Truth is on the march, and nothing can stop it. Of course, Ben-Gurion said, it's all lies. Shut up. Dayan and Paris, of course, continue to lie. Dayan, by this time, is an Israeli god. Because after the Sinai campaign. Here, take a look at this. And the, This is a, a small piece about the Sinai campaign. And this is how Israelis see Moshe Dayan, for understandable reasons. There is the victorious army in, in the Sinai desert. And there is... He, I mean, he's the man. Right? We all are young enough here to remember... The glory days of Moshe Dayan. And you don't want to say this guy did a Watergate. Okay, so it is what it is. So the whole Israeli system came under a certain crisis. The Minister of Justice in Ben-Gurion's government in 1960 and six other cabinet members make a committee to review the whole affair. They diplomatically say as follows. Lavon didn't do it. He should be cleared. We don't know who did it, so let's move on. You understand? Well, that's uh, Levi Eshkol was the one who was pushing that. And Eshkol was number two under Ben-Gurion. He said, just, you know, bury it. Lavon was framed, you know, let's do that. We don't actually have to know who did it and, and Viter. Uh, Ben-Gurion uh, freaked out. He lost his uh, temper and he lost his sense of judgment. He said, these are all lies. You're not a judicial committee. I demand that Lavon be fired and kicked out of the Mapai party. And he is, because Ben-Gurion is still powerful, but it's done grudgingly. People are saying, ah... Oh, He's pursuing a grudge, probably the one's telling the truth, you know, whatever. This, what I'm talking about, will contribute significantly to the decline of Ben-Gurion's charisma. Okay? It doesn't go away. Ben-Gurion won't let go either, although begged to by Mapai. They tell him all during 1961, 62, and 63, let it go. Okay? Say the was framed or something like that. We won't ask who really did it. Moshe Dayan is too popular now anyway. Nobody cares what he did years ago. Uh, you're in charge of everything. You know, uh, give it a rest, and it's hurting the party. Because until now, we've had it great. As long as we hold together, which is true, we dominate Israel. All during the elections of those years, it was always the Mapai had by far the largest number. They always got prime minister, defense minister, foreign minister, finance minister, all these kind of very important key elements in the government. They control the economy. The history was riding strong. Just let it go. He, He can't let it go. Okay, he can't. Eventually, Mapai will split over this in the 60s. By that time, many in the party are resentful of Paris and Dayan anyway, and internal Mapai politics becomes totally toxic. Um, I can tell you, and the funny thing is, this all happened at the moment, right after the elections of 59, when Mapai had its greatest electoral victory. They got like 47, I think. That was out of 120. That was their biggest uh, showing. Right after the Sané campaign, they ran on the slogan, Hagidu Ken Lezakein. Say yes to the old man. Say yes to Ben-Gurion. And they got a big 
I didn't get a majority, but they got a very big ruling just from the Mapatis, besides the other socialist parties. And so everything was going great. This is very much like a Greek tragedy you see all the time. When the, when the group gets very, very powerful, they split up internal uh, matters. Uh, we're not totally unused to this in the Jewish community, but I'll no, go no farther than that. Now, um, uh, the result is that uh, this, this is what tore the Mapai apart. After the reopening of the affair, Mapai deteriorates. Ben-Gurion certainly does. Within three years, he's out. So this took him down. He becomes a grumpy old man who attacks the Mapai party all the time as the epitome of corruption. Hello. <laughs> he sets up his own party and ruins the career of Shimon Paris. I'll tell you why. Paris was number two in defense ministry. He was the golden boy. And he was Ben-Gurion's fellow. And, and he was brilliant. In those years especially. He was very brilliant. We'll talk about that later on. He's a very remarkable person. He wanted to be uh, the guy who comes after Ben-Gurion's. And uh, it's a very good chance he, he would get there. Uh-uh. After this, um, he joins the Ben-Gurion against the Mapai Party. Who were the next Prime Minister of Israel? Eshkol, Goldemir, Rabin. The first uh, uh, item in the Mapai platform is down with Paris. Uh, this is actually one of the reasons Machen Begin came into power. If anybody remembers long enough, the Labour Party, Paris and, and Rabin were shooting each other all the time. And, and they were, Begin was able to get in. You understand? There were, there were the bitter feelings that are, that, that are in there. Uh, it really messed his career. By the time all that passed, it was already in the 1980s, and it wasn't the same Paris anymore, and it is what it is. The entire affair in those years was subject to military censorship. So a whole lexicon of euphemisms emerged in Israel. It was like, me, Natanador, who gave the order? You never spoke about the Levon affair. It was always about Esek Habish, the bad, bad business, the mess. You understand? Avri Elad was always the third man. The secretary was referred to, I forget, under some name. Everything was under... So you'd see newspapers, only in it, it's like 1984. Uh, the old man said to the uh, secretary that the third man was seen, you know, in the, in, in the Asik Bish over here. And so that is how the discourse was run, because Israel in those years is before the uh, YouTube, before all this stuff just got out, automatically before the age of the, of the Internet. And Israel still had... Uh, a fairly effective uh, military censorship business, and people felt it's necessary to uh, to uh, you know follow the censorship rules. Of course, that means that si- uh, on the Israeli street, it's a, it's a feast of gossip <laughs> and speculation. It was radioactive. I mean, you know, everybody was hawking big time. You know, whether it's a synagogue or anywhere else, you know, who did what and who I know who the third man really is. No, you don't. You know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, Lavon never got his re- rehabilitation. Died a bitter old man in 1976. And so the Lavon affair, as, they call, as we call it in English, Asik Beish, they call in Hebrew, revealed that although power was concentrated in those years in the hands of Mapai, the Mapai party itself was composed of factions, often warring factions. Publicly, they presented a united front. Behind doors, it was a different matter. On the other hand, it also revealed that Israel, at the end of the day, was a democracy in which the truth always does get out sooner or later. We're not totally unfamiliar with this in American history. Isn't that what happened with Watergate? Okay, it gets out sooner or later. It's messy, but the alternative is worse. Go, go, go back. You, don't, you don't hear too many scandals coming in the, in the dictatorship country. This stuff doesn't get out there. But then what happens? It erupts into a huge violent situation. So uh, uh, we are who we are. We are messy, but we are a democracy. Good night.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.